Well, I know. I, I mean, the new online version is like incorporating like various, like, you know, the, all the, the people who suddenly started saying like inshallah for no reason, mm. which yeah, is like fine true. if you are like, I mean, it's not like a problem or anything. It's just kind of weird to appropriate no, it for yeah. no reason. <laughs> well, what I, I, I have to admit when I play poker sometimes and I win a big hand or like there's some, like I was in danger and then it ends up working out in my favor, I'll type alhamdulillah, uh, <laughs> which is just basically thank God, yeah. but it pisses off exactly the wrong type of people <laughs> and I really get a kick out of it. Well, when you mean guys exactly start the right kind of <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, right, wrong. It really depends. There's different valences to this situation. But um, yeah, it, I really get a kick out of it when some racist in the chat like starts mouthing off and then I get to report him for racism. <laughs> the, anything like that always just makes me think of that tweet where the, the, the guy was talking about, he was like, yeah, at the Super Bowl, right after 9-11, they had the ad where the Budweiser <laughs> Clydesdales were like kneeling before the American flag. And I told my uncle they were kneeling to pray to Mecca and he got so mad he had to go outside. <laughs> <laughs> That was one of the all-time tweets. It and is. it always reminds me of a real instance where I was at a house show in Pittsburgh and someone said that Ween was better than the Beatles and a guy got so mad that he had to go outside. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Imagine wow. getting that mad about the Beatles. <laughs> I know, especially about like with a Ween fan who, in my estimation, might be the most unserious music people in the world. <laughs> I, you know what? Yeah, I, I think that that's probably true. Oh, like, I don't know. They're every all of their albums. You know, it's impressive. I would say that they are impressive. Yes, because their albums span every genre. Uh, ba- well, basically every genre. Besides, like, there's they don't really do extreme metal necessarily, do they? Not really. But there's like a straight up style parody of the Melvins on White mm. Pepper, and they do. They have like three different songs that sound exactly like Motorhead. Obviously, Gene uh-huh. loves Motorhead, so uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's my but... Ween review for the week. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. More music talk. We always oh, like uh, if we're not talking about microphones, we're talking about music. Yeah, well, you know what's a really great band is The Microphones, and welcome to <laughs> Work Stoppage, everybody. I don't actually listen to The Microphones a lot, but I see them rated highly on people's lists, so... Uh, I've never heard right. of them. <laughs> yeah, they must be doing something right. I like the books a lot, too. They're really, really good. Anyway... your favorite um bands named after pieces of equipment podcast my name is john i'm dan and i'm lena and we're entirely listener supported so thank you so much if you support us on patreon hop in the discord if you're not in there yet message me on patreon if you need some stickers and leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts or leave ween a five-star review on rateyourmusic.com <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please, please go wherever it is that you yeah, that you rate music and just put in reviews for bands and just tell people to listen to our show. Don't even talk mm-hmm. about the bands. 
<laughs> you know what? I think that a really good way to do that is it, we actually have playlists. You can go and there's tons of artists in there and you can rate them and be like, hey, found you through this sick playlist from this awesome podcast. Oh, yeah. Kind of like how like for a little while, about 25% of my favorite artists were artists I had found in Jeff Jacques' yearly roundup of his favorite albums because I was a dedicated questionable content reader since high school. <laughs> It's mm. a webcomic, if you don't know. Damn. <laughs> well, but also remember when you do it, also, if you're going to be on a streaming service posting a review, make sure to remind people to support Bandcamp United. Yeah, that's oh. exactly correct. But, Definitely. you know, as we transition out of music talk and into labor talk, uh, you know, we've got a story that this is kind of a follow-up because we've mentioned this before, but it's a new development in it, which is specifically... The attempted merger of Kroger, the largest standalone grocery chain in the country, with Albertsons, another popular chain, I believe largely uh, concentrated on the West Coast, um, oh. where basically for the last year, Kroger's been in talks to try and absorb them. Yeah, uh, I don't I don't want to interrupt you too much, but attempted merger also sounds like attempted murder. Attempted merger <laughs> sounds like a really sick band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Although you could also do attempted merge, but you would have to be a hardcore band. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or you could do... Um, merger, I think, gives you... Attempted merger gives you other options. Like, Well, genres. yeah, then you could be like a deathcore band or math rock, or you could be like any number I of things. I was thinking, like, what, what genre is MGMT? I don't know, but their big hit was in 6-4, and I'll always love them for it. Yeah, I just <laughs> right. think that, yeah. Anyway, yeah, anyway yeah. Albertsons, <laughs> anyway, uh, Kroger. <laughs> musical digression aside, Kroger has been attempting to buy Albertsons for a while. And, you know, workers sounded the alarm right from the get-go, uh, warning that the merger would be horrible not just for workers at both Kroger and Albertsons, which it absolutely will be if it goes through, uh, because it, the the merger, like all of these giant mergers, which is a big reason why they happen, is that they would assuredly result in store closures and job losses in the name of efficiency and eliminating redundancy. But it would also be awful for customers as well because it would further consolidate the country's grocery market into even fewer uh, players than it already has. It, I believe like this merger would leave it so that like, uh, like Kroger and Walmart between them would combine for almost half of like the entire grocery market in the U S really? Yeah. I mean, that's See, unbelievable. Can't, can't wait till food has extreme monopoly pricing and the, and the, uh, margins in grocery stores suddenly skyrocket and the workers still don't get good wages. Well, I mean, we've seen that in action. Remember when <laughs> Aldi bought all the, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> Remember when Aldi bought all the bottom dollars in Pittsburgh and we lost like the best cheap food store I've ever been to in my life? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Damn. Yeah. But so, yeah, obviously, you know, this giant merger would be terrible. And so the rank and file within the UFCW, the union by far most affected by this, uh, you know, who are, are the union representing Kroger workers, the rank and file have been sounding the alarm for this for a while, although the national leadership was a little slow to, to get on the opposition to the merger train. But we finally got a development in this this week when the Colorado Attorney General sued to stop the merger and, very interestingly, in the process revealed some pre-existing dirty dealing between the two companies. 
Oh, ho, ho, a little back channel uh, uh, closed door kind of uh, communique is happening here. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've never heard of this. Do <laughs> yeah, this, do this often? I've seen Mad Men and everything is straight up between companies usually. <laughs> <laughs> and they're always completely honest with the public. Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So, as reported by uh, Dave Jamieson at the Huffington Post, the, this lawsuit from the Colorado Attorney General uh, cites an agreement that was made by, between Kroger and Albertsons back in 2022 when workers at a Kroger-owned chain, King Supers in Colorado, who are members of UFCW Local 7, went on strike for better wages. We, we covered that strike uh, at mm-hmm. the time as one of the few kind of bright spots in the negotiations with the various like Kroger chains where folks actually went out on strike and, and, and fought for, for better conditions. And during that strike, Kroger, it turns out, reached out to Albertsons and formed an agreement that the latter would not hire any striking King Supers workers who were seeking to supplement their income during the strike. And in an email, Al- an Albertsons vice president told Kroger, quote, We don't intend to hire any King Supers employees, and we have already advised the Safeway division of our position, and that division agrees, end quote. Okay, okay, one, this is so obviously illegal. (laughs) It's it's extremely illegal, and you're just sending unencrypted emails agreeing to do illegal things. Two, this seems like an incredibly small amount of reward for the amount of risk that they took on because they're assuming that these workers who intend to supplement their income will think, wow, I have to work at another store. I can't, I can't work at a shoe store. I can't serve coffee. I can't go into landscaping for a little while. I'm obviously going to go work at a fucking mire or a family fair or a giant eagle because that's all I know how to do. It's kind of silly. Like, <laughs> yeah. On top of that, I'm also looking at the text on this one. It's uh, they spell supers as in soup, as in like the the food. Yeah. Instead yeah. of which, <laughs> I actually just I just like that. Um. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, this is the thing is I, that I think is really there's a lot of that I think is interesting about this story. But one of the things that I think is so important to point out here is that, like, this is not an exceptional incident. The exceptional part mm-hmm. of this is that we found out about it. Right. Like companies do this shit all the time. And a big part of it is that monopolization of various industries makes this shit easier. Because if there's only seven of you in the whole industry, it only takes like three of you colluding to completely change the market. Yeah, can you imagine the group chat between the executives at Burger King, Wendy's, and McDonald's? <laughs> right. It's got to be pretty fucking impressive. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And so, well, like, and internally, I mean, they can just do that internally with that. Like, as they get closer to a monopoly uh, or like a, a, a full monopoly, mm-hmm. I mean, they can just be like, uh, do blacklisting, which is mm-hmm. uh, also something that we've heard of many times. Yeah, well, and there's something like seven parent companies own something like. 60 to 70 percent of all of the like customer facing businesses in america (laughs) so well this is this too though i think is also so illustrative because you know one of the you don't necessarily hear this point brought up anymore or at least not as often but you know one of the original big attacks 
against unions by companies were that they were illegal combinations seeking to fix wages and make and and destroy the the incredible pristine free market that was operating <laughs> completely on its own. And again, one of the things that is so important to point out, and this this is just yet another example of it, is that that's always been bullshit. There's never been a free market. We talked about this when we talked about the very first factory strike in U.S. history mm-hmm. came about because mill owners in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, were colluding to fix wages against their workers. The bosses have done this shit forever, and they still say this stuff, just not, they use different language now, but it's it's just ridiculous to see they've been doing the same shit for hundreds of years and still rolling out the same talking points. Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. if you want something more recent, there's a great King of the Hill episode about it where all the propane dealers in that area of Texas get together. And uh, I think they fix prices, not wages, but the idea is roughly the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, but and the thing is, it's also this collusion just further underlines the point made by the rank and file workers of how bad this merger would be. Like, look at mm-hmm. the bullshit these people are doing, and they're not even in the same company. Imagine how bad it's going to be if they're all under the same umbrella. And and especially this is a problem because, you know, they're already colluding to set up a blacklist. But this is an industry where workers are already basically forced into poverty wages. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about specifically with Kroger so many times how awful the conditions there are. I think that, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm pulling from memory here, but I believe there was, a, there was a big report, I think we talked about it last year, where they talked about working conditions for Kroger workers. And I think it was something like 40% struggle with food insecurity. Which is just wild. Like, yeah, they're literally food workers. Well, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, oh, oh, I employ people full time. I don't pay them enough money to eat. Like, and that that's the thing you can say and not be thrown in prison. <laughs> like, it it's it's ridiculous, but that's how again, that's how Kroger became the biggest standalone grocery store in the country. And so Well, I mean, these are the same companies that would rather let their food spoil than give yes. it away to people who need to eat it because uh, they think it's going to undercut, you know, people's desire to buy food, which is a totally deranged thing to think. But also, I think there's some kind of like magical fucking tax write-off for letting oh, product go yeah, bad I'm as sure. well. So, well, yeah. and they always throw out the like, well, we don't want to be liable if it's expired. Oh, well, that's mm-hmm. the same thing they say about why we can't put un- homeless people in mm-hmm. empty houses. They're like, what if it's dangerous? It's like, I think the street's pretty fucking dangerous, <laughs> yeah. don't you? Yeah. Like, come mm-hmm. on. Yeah. It's lies every time. But so, you know, this suit from the Cor- Colorado Attorney General aims to block the merger, which would, of course, make all of these problems of collusion, wage fixing, blacklist much, much worse. Uh, to force the two companies to agree not to enter into non-compete agreements, which that one I always think is funny. I'm like, you're like, sign this paper that says you'll obey the law. <laughs> like, Because that's basically what, what that's saying. And then uh, also uh, attempting to fine the two companies uh, $1 million in civil penalties each, uh, which for these two firms is like, I mean, I, it's better than the OSHA fines, but especially sure. for Kroger, like that does, that doesn't really mean yeah. anything. They don't care about a million dollars. No. Albertsons, maybe, but uh, not Kroger. But so the other thing, though, that I really – and I, I will say shout out to uh, Dave Jamieson who, who wrote this, this article that I took a lot of this from because he reached out directly to um, Kim Cordova, uh, the president of UFCW Local 7, who led that King Super strike that this is all about. And she told the Huffington Post, quote, we'll never know what concessions we could have gotten from these employers – Absent the alleged no poach and no solicitation packs, 
We did well with our contracts, but we could have done even better. Maybe we could have struck longer, or we could have struck Safeway if we knew they had entered into an agreement like that, end quote. And I think that that it just hits it, you know, just yet another part of of how screwy this whole system is. Because again, they, they they're coming out here, and this isn't even like the union bringing these charges against the company. This is the state bringing these charges against them, which just shows how flagrant of a violation of the supposed sanctity of the free market this is. And, and it does, I think, really speak to the one of the many illusions, I think, in this that were thrown out there about the idea of us ever having a level playing field to bargain with the ruling class on. Because it's like, these motherfuckers are cheating no matter what rules you set up. Like That's why you have to take the power away from them in the first place. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. and I think that a really great example of that that we've covered so many times, it leads us right into our next story where we talk about Starbucks because they've been ramping up their war on workers by joining the rest of the ruling class cabal in trying to destroy the NLRB. And, I mean, Starbucks Workers United continues to make big organizing moves despite, well, yeah, despite the horrible attacks that have been coming in and uh, the blatant rule uh, law breaking that you know very similar to what we've just been talking about but this week the union filed for its single biggest day ever with 21 stores filing for an election at once on tuesday february 20th 400 workers at 21 starbucks stores filed for union elections in arkansas California, Colorado, Illinois, Louisiana, North Dakota, Nevada, New York, Ohio, Texas, Utah, Virginia, Washington, and Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Wow, their organizing team is really getting around the country. <laughs> yeah, like I wanted to list out all the states and not because it's like it was fun. It's one thing to say twenty-one stores. That's a lot of stores, and it's mm-hmm. say in fifteen states, and you get that. But I'm like, I feel like it hits home more when you say all of them. Especially, I want to point out. There's some states in there you we don't talk about on this show very often because there oh. aren't too many union elections there. North like, Dakota, yeah. Utah, Arkansas. Are North, you kidding me? Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really impressive. And in a letter to CEO Laxman Narasimhan, Nar- I think Narasimhan. I think. Uh, Nar- uh, Nar- uh, Nar- uh, yeah, Laxman right. Narasimhan, uh, the workers said, quote, across the country, management is cutting hours, writing inconsistent and unreliable schedules and placing more and more work on fewer and fewer partners. We partners demand a say. We are the face of Starbucks. As employees, we deserve the same respect and dignity as the CEO, end quote. More respect and, and dignity than the CEO, but yeah. yes, correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're selling yourself short there folks but but we appreciate the holding them to account (laughs) yeah and about 400 stores have already won union elections and their victories have been at a pace of about 80 percent victory and this would push the union to over 10,000 members Responding to questions about Starbucks' victorious campaign of union busting, Lizzie Harlow, a barista at the Sulphur, Louisiana location, which filed on Tuesday, told J- Dave Jamieson of the Huffington Post, Dave Jamieson, so busy, just doing mm-hmm. some great work. Uh, they said, quote, it's important that we're recognized as people rather than profit machines. We don't have any other choice but to stand together, end quote. And uh, don't have any choice but to stand together. Very true. 
Yeah, and one thing you know that I want to, I really want to highlight about that statement because I know you know it's going to sound like this is is the same thing you hear from a lot of like announcements, but like, and so I feel like it starts to run together sometimes for people. But I think it's one of the things that I think, at least for me, that can be kind of easy to lose sight of sometimes when you look at things from like very Marxist terms, <laughs> uh, and perhaps fall into a bit of economism uh, on my part, like is that it's like. You know, these workers are fighting for better health care. They're fighting for better wages. They're fighting for better hours. They are fighting for all those things, and they're things that they absolutely need, and they're incredibly important. But a big part of what all these workers and the workers in the big three automakers and the workers at UPS and the workers at Amazon in the ALU and in the Teamsters are fighting for in all of these struggles is to be respected as a human being. Mm-hmm. And that is like, I think... Something that we, like, I think sometimes it gets written off as like, oh, this is like a touchy-feely thing. This is just like some color that you add to like the language to make it resonate more. But like, that's like, uh, that is a material demand. Like, uh, that is something that is really important. And I think as organizers, like, we we shouldn't shy away from a demand like, because like, that's not something you're going to write in a contract. It's it's all the provisions that relate to forcing the management to respect you that you'll write down. But like, despite the fact that that's not one of those you must respect us, you know, that you write into legalistic terms. It's a really, really important point that I think we always really want to lean on because I don't care where you work. You are not treated with enough respect if you are a worker because you're being exploited. Yeah, and I think that when you actually go into this organizing process, it really highlights how much you aren't respected because Mm -hmm. so often when you're just kind of keeping your head down working at a job, you can just like lose sight of the fact that you are being deeply exploited and numberized by by an employer. And as soon as you're, you know, you're at the bargaining table or you see that union busting and and all of that, you start to get that realization that they actually really, really don't give a fuck about you. Like you can conceptually Mm -hmm. have a vague notion in your mind that that's true. But when it's material and right in your face, it really motivates is one of the reasons why they've actually garnered so many supporters and so much union activity because Mm -hmm. it's just straight up blatant that Mm -hmm. Starbucks is doing so much illegal shit to attack the workers because they don't give a fuck about the workers. And then lie into their face about it. Yeah. Well, and as if filing for a record number of new union stores in one day wasn't enough, Starbucks Workers United expanded their organizing fight in another direction on Tuesday as well, where the union announced the launch of a nationwide day of action on Thursday the 22nd at 25 university campuses across the country following the example set by students at Cornell in Ithaca, New York. And this was where Starbucks had closed all union stores in retaliation for organizing in the city. And so the students uh, had, you know, petitioned to get that contract stopped. And so now students at 25 schools across the United States have organized together to demand that their universities cut ties with Starbucks as well due to their anti-worker policies, which, hell yeah, I mean, really, like, just kick, kick them out. Let them know that that shit's not okay. Well, and this, I I love this because this is like, I mean, you're basically, it's applying the whole concept of divestment to like the union struggle. I know it's not unique, but like, I think in the current organizing environment, that's an, it's a way to, to like, look at this is, is like why it's a particularly potentially very effective angle of attack. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, and it's also just a diversity of, of tactics. Mm-hmm. On it just adds to more ways in which you're putting pressure on the company. On top of on top of the fact that it's really just you know important to to be able to use those sorts of tactics. But we have a quote here from Valley Pendiala, a student at Georgetown, who said in a statement, "Quote: If Starbucks was a student, they would have been expelled by now because of the number of rules they've broken." That's why we're working on taking action to demand Georgetown let its contract with Starbucks expire and that it holds Starbucks accountable for its attacks on workers, end quote. <laughs> and, I mean, also this is mobilizing more people because also the, like, lots of college people end up going in working at Starbucks. And so mm-hmm. by mobilizing people on college campuses, you can be doing some early inoculation and organizing for maybe some future workers at Starbucks. Absolutely. Yeah, well... And- I love this argument, too, because it mirrors something we say on this show all the time, which is like, you know, if a corporation steals your wages or steals your time from you or or steals your benefits away from you, they might have to go to court. They might get some fines. There might be something to work out. But most of the time, they really just get away with it. Whereas, like, if I go into a grocery store and I steal a piece of fruit because I'm hungry, I go to jail. Mm-hmm. And and to say like look if Starbucks was a student they would have been expelled by now like they, they would have been expelled I think uh, right about as soon as the first stores <laughs> mm-hmm. started announcing that they were organizing in fucking New York you know Mhm yeah because the I mean union busting was ramped up to no, I guess not a maximum at that point, but because we clearly saw and have seen how much uh, they're willing to go for but really it was a very high amount of repression immediately And Starbucks workers in cities across the country are also fighting to hold Starbucks accountable for some of its rampant law breaking. Because this week, workers in Chicago and Philadelphia filed complaints against Starbucks for violating the city's fair work week laws. These laws require the giving of workers advance notice of their schedules, pay a premium for last minute shift changes, and offer part time workers more hours before hiring new workers. And workers have filed 10 complaints of violating the laws in Chicago and 12 in Philadelphia. And in addition, addition to 76 similar charges that workers have filed in New York City, uh, which, I mean, that's a lot of violations, not only, and it's important because so often we're like, oh, the NLRB moves so slow, and, and really, there needs to be so many fronts on this. This is another version of the diversity of tactics. Yeah, well, and also, I mean, damn, New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia, those are like my top three cities you don't fuck with. You know what I mean? <laughs> Throw in Baltimore and you can really round, round out the list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we have uh, two more quotes. We have one from Lily Elling, a barista at the Char- Chicago's Greektown Starbucks, who told the Chicago Tribune, quote, the schedules are different every week. There's really no rhyme or reason. I myself have family out of state, and so if I want to visit them or if an emergency comes up, it's very hard for me to go home, end quote. And that yeah. is just the experience of every worker, I feel like. Well, well, but I mean, irregular schedules, like uh, in particular, like that is like, I think for like a lot of us who have like, a, a nine to five, like I have a nine to five job. I've pretty much always had a nine to five job, but like, oh, I've, I've, I've having a having a schedule that could change on no notice is like being on call twenty four seven, which is mm-hmm. a nightmare. But Dan, don't you want a flexible schedule? No, yeah, well, no, I, know, I right? don't. <laughs> well, like I used to work at Starbucks, and this also happened at other jobs. You know, when I worked in kitchens at the beer distributors, whatever. I would just like routinely clopen 
I would just like work from fucking open to close and then I'd come back in and I would open the store back up because if that's what they needed and I said no, that they would write me the fuck up. They'd be like, well, he didn't want to work. Yeah. He tried to get out of working. Why would anyone do that? (laughs) I would never try to get out of working for what possible reason. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like the the most consistent shift I shifts I had were at a union radio station, and then also uh, this podcast. That's it. Every other time, uh, it has been just absolutely just whatever the fuck the management decides. And honestly, because I'm a loudmouth, and p- people don't always like. Well, I should say, and management doesn't always like me. It's almost <laughs> always closing and opening shifts and shit like that. The worst shifts. I I always got the worst shifts. It was very consistent. The management is incredibly consistent at giving me <laughs> bad shifts. But in the second statement that we have here from Workers United spoke from a from a Workers United spokesperson, they said, "quote Starbucks workers have made it very clear that they're not going to back down and will use every tool they have to try to make Starbucks a better place to work, from fighting for a fair contract to holding the coffee giant accountable to our city's fair work week laws." End quote. And again, just this is going back to exactly what I've said. This will be the third time. Diversity of tactics. They're using them and it's important. Well, and the other thing, though, I mean, it's not even necessarily that, you know, it's like uh, like that breadth of tactics like by itself has an inherent like power. But the other thing, though, is each individual one of these things is an opportunity to 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 blow their shit up, basically, Mm -hmm. like not in a literal sense, in, in a in a media sense, basically to put them on blast with each one of these individual stories. So it's like, here's the fair work week violations in Chicago. Here's another story, fair work week violations in New York. And it's because obviously, you know, the media is going to decide which they want to promote, which they don't, but like getting it in front of people's eyeballs is, you know, another way to help boost more and more support, potentially increase people boycotting the company for various reasons. So yeah, I think it, it absolutely is a good strategy, but Speaking, actually, you know, I just spent all this time, I guess, maybe poo-pooing the inherent greatness of diversity of tactics. But our next story is about the UAW, who this week basically did just that. So, <laughs> um, I think that it has its place. Like you could be, you could spread yourself thin by trying to constantly do a thousand different things. I think is what you're getting to. Yeah. But if you have the capacity, a diversity of tactics is incredibly useful. Sure. And more importantly, you never want to just get bogged down, focused only on one, just because that's what you've already been doing. Cause that's just dogmatic, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, so it's another week in 2024 and therefore we have a shitload of stuff to talk about with the UAW because, uh, they just can't stop organizing folks. Um, <laughs> the most dynamic union. They're like the let's paint TV guy. You ever seen him? He's incredible. No. He, he runs on a TV. treadmill and does a live show and paints and talks to the audience and like interacts with them live the whole time. Uh, I'm friends with him on Facebook. I'm forgetting his name right now, but he's incredible. He's a really cool guy. So he's like ADHD the show. Yes, and he's been doing it since like forever ago. Like It used to be a public access show up in the Pacific Northwest, I think, but now it's a live stream on the internet, of course. Damn, that rocks. Anyway, huh. UAW. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, to, so to start off with, uh, with the UAW... Uh, on Tuesday, February 20th, which was a very big day for uh, news last week, uh, the union announced that the executive board has voted to commit $40 million to organizing over the next two years, which uh, is 
on its face already, an enormous amount of money, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is great. But also for perspective, it represents nearly double the spending in organizing that the union made last year and is one of the biggest material investments in organizing the unorganized by a major U.S. union in years. And these are, of course, being specifically largely focused on the UAW's nationwide fight to unionize non-union auto workers and battery factory employees. And, you know, these resources are likely to be needed uh, because the bosses are already fighting back against those organizing efforts. Uh, this past Friday, February 23rd, uh, Josh Idelson of Bloomberg reported that high-ranking executives at Mercedes have been visiting the company's plant in Alabama to conduct captive audience meetings. Uh, I I just want to point out, you know, you I, it, sometimes I was just mentioning earlier, you can feel like you're, you know you're keeping your head down, you don't realize how much you are, just a number to them. But as soon as you're organizing, you get to talk to the CEO. Why is that? <laughs> it happens almost every time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this huge, like, uh, Howard Schultz vibes uh, with this one. Uh, because, like, so Michael Goebel, uh, actually, I, I think it has an umlaut. I didn't write it. So is it Goebel? How do you say the, the, the O with an umlaut? I don't know. It says here CEO of Mercedes, so I don't <laughs> think it matters. That's yeah, so true. I would say Goebel. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, is this guy literally, like, the singular Goebel? <laughs> Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm going to just say yes. I'm just going to say yes. It would be gobble. The, yeah. So yeah. the, the, the CEO of, of Mercedes U S division, uh, came to the plant to speak directly to workers, imploring them to vote against the union. <laughs> and in a recording provided to Bloomberg, uh, Google, uh, uh, told workers that they quote, shouldn't have to pay union dues that generate millions of dollars per year for an organization where you have no transparency where that money is used. I believe you shouldn't have to go through strikes, years of negotiation, or complicated processes to communicate and resolve conflicts, end quote. Oh, no transparency. <laughs> I, I believe there's a thing called unionfacts.com. Why are they just... <laughs> <laughs> well, and shouldn't have to pay union dues that generate millions of dollars per year for an organization where you have no transparency. That's a lie and a projection. And then I believe you shouldn't have to go through strikes, years of negotiation, blah, blah, blah. That's just a straight up straw man because that's not, that's not the alternative that they're choosing. That's like the action that you forced them into. Right, well, right. Well, because that's the thing. It's like, yeah, the UAW didn't just go out on strike for no reason. Like, they were like, you need to pay workers more so they can live. And at that point, the company could just be like, oh, shit, we're not paying the workers enough. And then just pay them. And then there wouldn't have been a strike <laughs> in the same thing. <laughs> that it, that's the thing. That's the other funny thing. Mr. Go like Gerbil or whatever, like I can, <laughs> I, you hire me as a consultant and I can guarantee you, I will stop the union drive. hundred <laughs> percent. Give every worker at this plant a 50% raise cost of living it, it, and a cost of living adjustment of, I don't know what 5% on top of inflation. We'll just throw that on there and give everybody two months of vacation there then they won't win go and i know like look i'm being a, absurdist here on purpose but it's like but that's the thing what I, I say that all to say it's always the agency here is always on the bosses because they're the ones doing the exploiting they can choose to exploit their workers less and you'll probably they won't organize against you but they won't do that because they want those profits
Uh-huh. And the years of negotiation thing, I just want to re-like say what John was saying. Uh, years of negotiation for what reason? Is the union being like, oh, no, we need to keep dragging this out? Or is it the company? Well, right. and also it's like, you know, Dan, uh, they would never hire you as a consultant because they Stafford Beer already tried giving that advice to companies. <laughs> and the only one that would listen to him was the government of Chile and the CIA overthrew them. So <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> But but also I do want to say like not just with all the you know the the explaining the agency and goofing on these guys but also to one of the points that you brought up though John this is also his statement is also explicitly a lie because mm-hmm. the the thing about the lack of transparency not true the Landrum Griffin Act explicitly requires it's basically its whole purpose is to require unions to report their finances to the Department of Labor and their members well, and also the UAW under this administration is one of the most transparent and democratic yes. unions we've ever <laughs> seen in modern American history. Full stop. That's just how it is. <laughs> of the larger unions, I think we should still give some credit to some smaller unions. Yeah, well, yeah but I mean, like, of the highly visible I-W-W. household name unions, like the UAW right. is standing head and shoulders above yeah. the competition. No, mm-hmm. absolutely. But it's it's just like this whole thing. There's no, the whole foundation of his argument. There's no transparency. He's like literally the opposite is true. Like yeah. there are very few organizations you could join in the United States that are legally required to have more transparency than a labor union. <laughs> oh, certainly not Mercedes fucking Benz. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, because it's the thing. Like UAW members are briefed on what the union spends its money on. So like the whole thing is just a lie, but it also exposes another lie from Mercedes, which is one of Mercedes-Benz's own internal policies because as reported by Bloomberg, the company's official principles state, quote, the company and its executives shall remain neutral, end quote, in the event of organizing campaigns. (laughs) Wait, what was that last statement again? The company and its executives shall remain neutral in the event of organizing campaigns. No, 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 no. The one before this where we were hearing them not remaining neutral. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, look, I got to tell you, neutrality is always a fucking lie. This is why I repeatedly say you have a dog in every race. Don't ever tell me you don't have a dog in this race. Mm -hmm. Because here's the deal. The most famous example of neutrality in the history of the English speaking world helped the Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's just how it is (laughs) and if you just translate that onto everyone who says they're neutral forever you'll almost never be wrong (laughs) that might be a bit extreme but you know (laughs) (laughs) it's like when people say oh if someone you're you're making a switzerland joke is that what you're like yes okay well but i I mean also that and appeasement i mean like yeah and, and also like i guess like scandinavia nominally being uh, neutral and then largely being invaded. Yeah, people <laughs> like, always like to say like Finland was neutral. Like I don't know what kind of fucking not nonsense really. are you smoking? Come on. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, you know, back to the UAW. In a statement from the union, Mercedes worker Jacob Ryan said, "Quote: We all know what management is doing. They are panicking about us winning our fair share and winning our union. Mercedes clearly only listens when we organize, and we're going to keep at it until we win a better life." 
and win our union, end quote. Really kind of hitting on that point you made, Lena, about, hey, once you start organizing, you get to meet the CEO. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's weird. It happens like every time. If you don't get to meet the CEO, there's a complaint you can file. There well, you go. Well, it's also just like, I don't know, it, it's got to be weird working for a company for how many fucking years and nothing you ever do ever makes the bosses turn their heads or, or look up from their little bit of paperwork or their laptop or whatever. And then as soon as you start organizing, all of a sudden, everything is different. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, oh, I, we might have hit on something, you know? <laughs> like, Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, but finally, with our l- just last bit of uh, UAW news for this week, uh, also this past Friday, um, the UAW announced that the executive board has voted to create a new solidarity project aimed at providing material support and resources to auto workers in Mexico building independent unions. In the announcement, which came on the 30th anniversary of the signing of NAFTA, The UAW said, quote, corporations use the threat of offshoring jobs as a cudgel to beat back worker discontent and organizing efforts in the U.S. Mexican auto worker wages have fallen dramatically since the implementation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, in 1994. Under NAFTA, Mexico's automotive workforce has grown sevenfold, while wages, benefits, and working conditions continue to fall behind, end quote. Hell yeah. I just think this is such an important like initiative by them for like 20 different reasons, but I'll let you go at it. Go ahead. I'm just going to say like, it's, it's, it's hard to overstate how important this is. It's a little bit apples and oranges, but to me, this feels as significant as organizing non-union auto workers in the United States. Like they're both incredibly big campaigns, but I think it would be easy to overlook the significance of this one because like, Ever since 1994, the, the, the relationship of auto workers to bosses in both countries had a fundamental change for, to the detriment of workers across the continent, basically. Um, we can throw in Canada as well. And it's just like, I don't know, it's, it's so rare that you see unions, even if it is in maybe a way that isn't like, you know, hyper-Marxist or whatever, recognize the shape of economic imperialism as being one of the core ways in which their and other workers' rights to live freely and safely are being undercut. Yeah, and I I mean, like, also just like this being an example, you're talking about the UAW being such a big union, making that so unprecedented how uh, transparent they are. It's also unprecedented that they are being so international Mm -hmm. and that this is really just the first steps in showing that this internationalism does pay dividends for all workers. And it really provides so many benefits for so many people. Yeah, I mean, when we when we covered the book uh, El Golpe, we talked about the fact how, you know, back in the 90s, the AFL-CIO, like, helped the CIA, mm-hmm. like, undermine uh, independent organizing at Ford in Mexico. And now, 30 years later, instead of that, we have the UAW joining forces with those Mexican auto workers, which is exactly what we need. And the other thing that I want to point out about this is that You'll run into a lot of folks who usually younger folks who, who get into who get into the left and they get into the most left stuff they can possibly read, which nothing wrong with that. Um, but you see a lot of development of uh, of 
ultra left views on the working class in uh, imperialist countries, like specifically on the United States, where you'll get people who get into these like doomerist views of like, there are so many racist workers. The American working class is irretrievably broken, blah, 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 which is not true and is ahistorical and all these things. But the thing is that there, there is something they're pointing to, which is real, which is the, in, the use of, of propaganda and the ideological state apparatus and, and various just pressures in society from the ruling class to indoctrinate members of the working class with bourgeois ideological constructs like racism, xenophobia, and nationalism. And as, we have, like, as people have documented time and time again, arguably the single most important organization that you can be involved with for fighting racism, like in real terms for making people who are racist, less racist is unions. And this is like that on a national scale, because what is one of the primary ways right now, maybe the primary way that the ruling class is trying to get one part of the American working class to fight the other part. It's immigration. It's, it's, all you hear them screaming about constantly to try and drive people into the arms of fascism. And this is a direct counter move against that. And that is, like, I think, extremely important. And like why these sorts of things, like we should be pushing all our unions to do stuff like this. And this is like, so we should be like, this is, uh, I think this is an incredibly important initiative by the UAW and is an example for how our like labor movement can actually do things politically that are effective instead of just wasting our time endorsing and donating money to Democrats. Yeah, I think that it's really easy to fall into like a vulgarization of the uh, uh, concept of the labor aristocracy. All mm -hmm. American workers are part of the labor aristocracy. They'll never fight for people internationally. And uh, I mean, like there's certain things that you can point to that would maybe give some evidence to that. And when we see this, we see ways that we're breaking that down and really mm -hmm. subverting that as something that does have a little bit of a leg in the United States, but it must like that ideology has to be broken. Well, and it's also like, I don't know, uh, at any point, is it appropriate to give up on trying to make people less racist? No. So, right. you know, that's silly. And then also, wouldn't you think that maybe an organized a democratic organization that takes place in the workplace but is not led by the bosses might actually secretly be the best candidate <laughs> for helping people change their minds about controversial social issues on which they need to get the right side? I don't mm -hmm. fucking know. Seems like it makes a lot of fucking sense to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, while we've made it through uh, three of our stories and we're this far and we should uh, continue talking about some automotive work. And this time we get to look at some of the great work that the Inflation Reduction Act has brought us because, uh, and I mean that very sarcastically, <laughs> in Kentucky, a brand new electric battery factory facility has been being built since 2022. And, uh, you know, lucky for us, you know, uh, Joe Biden has allowed our podcast to remain a mold podcast because we're talking about cars, but also we're going to be talking about mold. We love uh, mold, folks. Yeah. <laughs> right? we, we love to hate mold. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so this company that we're going to be talking about today is called Blue Oval. They received a $9.2 billion federal loan to do this project in, in Kentucky. Last year, Ford and SKON, a South Korean car manufacturing company, had a uh, contracting company, Lesco, build a building to prepare the infrastructure for their auto plant. Well, it's a it's a electric battery plant. But uh, by fall, this building was done and the equipment was being rolled in. And rolled in with it were boxes streaked with black mold. Well, I guess that's maybe just one type of mold. It was There was lots of black all over the boxes. With the winter approaching, Lesko then ordered the workers to close all the doors on the building, sealing in the mold. And by December, there were tons and tons of complaints about the health conditions, and a report was issued where they said that there were seven different kinds of mold in the building. Damn, we got a whole mold cornucopia here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And despite being uh, advised to not bring more boxes into the facility at this time, uh, the workers were ordered to anyway. Look, we got all this mold. We got to store it. (laughs) <laughs> right uh, and we'll get to what they're going to do about the mold which is yeah anyway so uh this is actually partially union work not that the in- inflation reduction act actually requires union work it just encourages it uh there is an ibw worker who was in there doing the electrical work and he was so deeply affected by the mold that he was hospitalized he said Jesus. i c- couldn't get air into my lungs i was seeing fireflies causing coughing up chunks like white leather all night crawling across the floor end quote that is an incredibly vivid description (laughs) yeah that's awful that sounds horrible yeah and so what does the company do well they tell the workers not to worry a manager of the project said that the factory building would be shut down and cleaned in march and uh, that is more than seven months after the first reports of the mold, and notably five months after the official report. Damn. Well, we're we're right on it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. One more detail that highlights how ineffective OSHA is is that OSHA has no specific standards regarding mold, which actually makes me think that's why it has come up so much on our show. Not that OSHA <laughs> really does a lot to really, you know, make labor standards better, but we might have had one or two less situations of mold on the show had they had any standard at all, which they don't. Uh, the most that they could do is provide a general citing for, quote, failing to protect worker health, end quote, and recommend that the company provide N95s for workers to uh, in specifically contaminated areas and, and, and only a suggestion. And I mean, it's not an accident that OSHA doesn't have an official mold standard that they can cite. It's the same this because I can tell you why they don't have one for the same reason they don't have a real uh, standard for like heat stroke. Like, you know, protection from extreme heat. Because if they did, then even with their incredibly ineffective and largely useless bureaucracy, they would have to nominally enforce those. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they would, they would go do that voluntarily themselves, but it would open up avenues for workers to sue their companies for failing to comply with them. And in issues like this, like mold, what percentage of companies actually properly ventilate their buildings? Like five? Yeah, yeah it's you're not being a generous. Lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and- like, you could probably apply whatever standard they would come up with. You'd probably fail like half the businesses in this country. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, and the company that owns this plant, Blue Oval, only began actively mitigating the health effects that workers were facing in the plant after a local news station carried the mold story on February Mm -hmm. 1st. So suddenly when they get a little bit of public pressure, they're like, oh, no, we are doing something now. But while the workers were complaining, there was no action at all. And now they're hiring another contractor to open the boxes outside and then providing PPE and spraying the boxes with bleach solution. Uh, That detail is really strange to me because they're like, oh, yeah, these union workers are complaining a lot. Why don't we get another contractor in here to open the boxes? Well, also, like, I don't know how effective that is, but it's also like you had to wait until you were shamed on TV to, right. to figure out some kind of solution that doesn't seem complicated. It seems like however well this is working, you definitely could have tried it way so, earlier. No. So here's the thing. I, I This is where I will jump in with technical expertise. I'm a project manager. This is the sort of problem you give a project manager to solve. And this solution that they brought out here of, oh, well, shit, you got these moldy boxes and they brought them in the thing and now the mold's everywhere. The solution of why don't you just open them outside and also clean all the fucking mold off before you take anything inside. Hey, you don't need a project manager to come up with that solution. (laughs) You could just ask the delivery guy and he would probably tell you that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or literally any one of these IBEW workers, they would also have probably told you that. But if you want to go with the, you know, personnel that they hire because they love credentials so much, uh, then they would have just told you to do this immediately and almost assuredly did tell the executives Mm -hmm. to do this immediately, which they then promptly ignored because they would have had to pay to do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the electrical contractor is retaliating against the employees for this, demanding the names of the employees at Blue Oval so that they can blacklist them from for, for, from further projects. Uh, but, you know, luckily the IBW does have contracts that basically make it so that they're a union hiring hall mm. that protects many workers from this attack. But, I mean, they're still going to try. Uh, and it also doesn't necessarily help that Blue Oval is excluded from the policy that the stand-up strike had won, where they these battery facilities were supposed to be brought in as union work. Somehow, Ford is just saying, oh, no, this is an exception, which I don't understand that. Oh, is that because maybe it's because this plant wasn't open yet? Yeah, it must be. I, maybe mm. that's why. Yeah, but I mean, well, at the same that's why time, the UAW is spending forty million dollars on new organizing. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's true. That's true. And all this time, the IBW workers have been organizing at their weekly brotherhood nights, which is basically where they all get together at the bar or whatever and talk about work and all that uh, to gather donations to help affected workers, which uh, shouldn't have to be the way that people get like compensation for this. But I am glad that they're sticking up for their fellow workers. So what we're saying is all power to the IBEW Brotherhood Nights, which is basically yeah. I'm 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 counting these as Soviets. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. What if and, the Soviets met at the bar? <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and the person I mentioned earlier that we quoted from James Lucky Dugan, uh, the worker who was hospitalized, said, "Quote." We're all scared because we know we could be carrying mold on our clothes back to our families, exposing the community. This is corporate America walking all over us, end quote. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's time for a fight, I guess. Well, I, I, this shit is so... I feel like we hear this with, like, 
every major giant construction project, you know, like you hear about, oh, we built this thing. It's amazing. Da, da, da. And then like a year later, all the lawsuits come out <laughs> about like all the bazillion laws and regulations that these giant companies broke in the process of building all these things. I feel like this is a lot more common than we end up hearing about. Another thing that also stood out to me, and this is maybe a non sequitur, is how long this project has taken to get up and moving. Like it's taken multiple years, and I just think of like how fast like things pop up in China, where it's like you know they can do things in months, and maybe that's mm-hmm. just it. It just I don't know, just an observation. The, the American auto companies have had to be dragged, kicking and screaming, into getting involved in EV production, and they're like intentionally not doing a good job. It's right? so interesting By- though, because I know organizations that are already active in these industries that are really, really fast moving and democratic and good at organizing the workers, <laughs> but for some reason they're not in charge of the industries. Very stupid, very inefficient way of running things. Bad system. (laughs) Stafford Beer rolling in his grave. Um, (laughs) uh, And probably a lot of other really smart people. But uh, for our next story, we're going to move over to uh, D.C., where hundreds of D.C. area bus drivers have moved fast by all stopping moving at the same time, as well as the mechanics. So about 630 unionized Fairfax connector bus operators, mechanics, and utility crews of ATU Local 689 went on strike at 2 a.m. Thursday morning. Badass time to go on strike, by the way. 2 a.m. Demanding a new contract with the bus's contractor group after the previous one expired in late 2023. So the workers have been holding the strike line for 17 hours a day and as a result the Fairfax connector suspended its services for Thursday February 22nd and Friday February 23rd the strike was authorized following a vote by the union members all the way back in December of 2023 with union members continuing to work until Thursday morning before going on strike in the middle of the fucking night uh, like <laughs> the true heroes that they are. I guess that's probably when the last bus gets in yeah. the garage. So I was going to say, yeah, that's got to be the, the, the last uh, route from the previous night. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. But it, it also highlights like that. Uh, one of the things that I think people don't necessarily think about, like with the job of a bus driver, it's like, damn, you got to have some, some, at least some bus drivers are working some really fucking tough hours. Yeah. And as I understand it in most cities, bus drivers are like, they don't work their shift doesn't move around which is good but it means that if you're on that late late shift where you get done at 2 a.m you might be getting done at 2 a.m for five or ten years of your life it's got to be you know it's got to be a seniority thing i'm sure oh i'm sure yeah yeah i'm sure by the if you're some guy who's been there for 30 years i hope you get first shift like a normal (laughs) good shift yeah Uh, anyway uh you might if you have a union Um, So the union and Transdev have reportedly been in talks uh, on a new contract since October of 2023, but after 12 bargaining sessions, the union says that Transdev has been slow walking the talks and that the contractor's latest proposal ignored most of the union's key priorities, like competitive wage increases for bus operators, retirement security, more sick leave, and balanced rights between workers and management. All of this despite involving a federal mediator and meeting with Fairfax County officials. So again, that's 12 negotiation sessions, bargaining sessions, a federal mediator and bringing in county officials. And after all that, the union is like, yeah, I think they're slow walking the talks. I think even the most skeptical person would have to believe that statement by the union at this point. And also, like... 
I mean, I already was against the idea of using private contractors to run public services, obviously. Um, But, like, boy, Transdev seems like a real piece of shit company. Like, they have come up every single time Transdev shows up on this show. It's not just that they're a shitty exploitative company that like refuses to negotiate well with the the union and operates in bad faith. That's every corporation, but they seem like particularly intransigent and nasty about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, for their part, Transdev claimed that they offered a fair agreement to increase pay by 19.5% over 36 months, cover 90% of healthcare expenses and 50% of dental and vision expenses, guaranteed minimum working hours, a total of 11 paid holidays, and an average of two additional sick days across all seniority levels. They also claimed to have a generous 401k plan. But union members told Seven News that many of its former members have had difficulty retiring or have had to quit due to concerns with the program. So it does seem like Transdev has some like boilerplate, you know, better than whatever kind of benefits. But like the union is telling them straight up to their face, like, look, the way that you have it arranged and the way that you give us access to our benefits is killing us. It's making us need to leave our fucking jobs or in some cases have difficulty retiring because we don't have enough benefits to get out of our job. And it's like one of these classic cases where the company keeps harping on issues that are already basically solved because it's convenient for them to have those around. But you know, the, the union keeps telling them like that, that is literally not the issue that we're getting at right now. Well, and the other thing, like, I just want to point out, because, you know, I, I'm sure that folks will see the 19.5% raise in, in a year and a half. Wow, that's so good. And, like, yeah, compared to, like, if you're on years of 2 or 3% raises. But we have to consider, again, that over the last four years, the cost of living in this country has increased mm-hmm. by over 20%. So, like, they're making up a huge, like, they're trying to make up a lot of ground. And so, like, that is pro- again I, I don't have their previous contract for these folks but i have to imagine it was negotiated probably right around 2020 if it's coming sure. up for de- debate now and well, that raise was probably like 5% and it's so it's, it's also worth noting that they're not just making up for recent inflation and the intransigence of the company they're also making up for the fact that their industry was privatized in the first place mm-hmm, which exactly assuredly cut a ton of jobs and cut a ton of benefits from the jobs that remained well and this is the thing it's like you know there's always the excuse with these sorts of private contracts where they're just like oh this will be things so much more efficient we just mm-hmm. rather than having to run our own internal bureaucracy and all this stuff we'll we'll just pay somebody else to do it which a has always bothered me on its face because I'm like if you think about that for 3 seconds I'm like that company you hire is going to have to do all the work your bureaucracy was doing cuz mm-hmm. the whole idea is to run this bus system but they're also making a profit off it. So how is it more efficient to hire them? <laughs> and it's like, oh, no, what you mean by that is that by hiring a private contractor, it creates a separation between the employees and the state mm-hmm. so that we can get the contractor to have the freedom to exploit, harass, and intimidate the employees that the state has a lot less of because the state is at least nominally more vulnerable to public pressure, although in reality a lot less than they imply. And and, and so, like, 
that is a big part of it. But then the other thing is that by entering into that sort of a business model where you're like, I, I want to do this so that they'll exploit the workers more and make it shittier, mm -hmm. you are making the workers strike more. Right. Well, and, and producing all these interruptions. Well, and also like a lot of these things where they're like, oh, we're giving you a total of 11 paid holidays. Like that's not even one a month. Like, come on. Yeah, like that's, these that's are, like a normal amount of holidays. That's these, not like... <laughs> yeah, these are bus drivers, by the way. They have a notoriously difficult job for a litany of reasons. Like, the public is awful to them. The streets of the cities are often difficult to navigate. It's just, it's difficult. And so the company's statement also harped endlessly on wages and total compensation, but the, use, the union also claimed in their own statement, I think more tellingly, that TransDev's failure to acknowledge Fairfax County's particularly high cost of living and tax burden means that wage increases alone aren't enough to improve their employees' quality of life, saying, quote, Local 689 insists on improved benefits for workers in order to ensure they can live where they work and that they can retire with dignity. And I think that living where you work thing is really important too because if you want these bus drivers to be able to bus you around your fancy little fucking neighborhood you need to let the bus drivers live in the fancy little fucking neighborhood yeah mm -hmm. well and it, and then the other thing too is that it's like that also plays into the compensation because it's like the average cost of living mm -hmm. in the u.s has increased something like 20 percent in major cities like dc it's even more because people there's more competition for the artificially uh, you know, artificially scarce amount of housing that people want. So yeah, yeah, it's it's ridiculous and all solidarity with these ATU workers. Well, and I just want to point out one last thing before we move to our next story is that they are saying that they want to improve the conditions. So often the what the companies want to do is make lateral moves at best or or very often like moves that move people backwards in quality of life and so just like the fact that they're asking for something that improves the quality of life should just be the standard mm -hmm. i mean if these people can keep increasing their profits every year and improve the the standard of the the fucking owning class why is it that the workers have to take the hit on that also mm -hmm. 401ks are a scam that's yeah, true. also 401ks. Are, I mean, that's like the other thing. Like they, they cover 90% of healthcare expenses and 50% of dental and vision. Then wrong. You lied. You don't care, cover 90% of healthcare expenses because dental and vision are healthcare. Right. They yeah, just exactly. are. <laughs> right. That's a really good point, too. Yeah. That shit is so annoying. I need to go to the eye doctor, but that is unrelated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, another uh, slightly unrelated thing is our next story <laughs> where over 2,000 PhD students at John Hopkins voted in February of 2023 to form a, you know, their federally recognized union. And since May of that year, members uh, of the Teachers and Researchers United, TRU, have been negotiating for their first contract. But after nine months, the union members say that the university has made little progress in meeting their demands. A crowd of graduate students held a picket on Tuesday in front of Hopkins Homewood campus to pressure administrators with threats of further labor action. This is just like, it's not surprising when we see this shit in, 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 you know, private companies and it shouldn't. And I, I, I suppose it shouldn't surprise me in academia with everything we know about it. But this, again, the, the drag, the intentional bad faith bargaining, there's the refusal to treat the, the, 
again, these teachers and researchers at this university, like they're human beings and negotiate with them in good faith is just so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Wisdom Abadala, a doctoral candidate at Hopkins the in the School of Medicine, said that the point of the practice picket is to show that the union is ready to strike, which also I love a practice picket. He said, quote, for, for the last nine months, the university has done everything they can to stall and be obstructionist. Our labor provides all the prestige and work that make the university run. We want them to know that without us, they can't be the Johns Hopkins they want to be, end quote. And love workers recognizing that they are the ones who produce all of the work and value and such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, you, you run that fucking school. Mm-hmm. And then we also have Sandy Peoples, who was a bargaining committee member for TRU, who said that it took six months to convince the university leaders to include a clause for non-discrimination in their contracts because they very much so wanted to continue discriminating, saying, quote, through a lot of work and action and in-person turnout, we were able to move them at the table, end quote. And the idea that you have to mobilize a bunch of people to get the university to have a non-discrimination clause is I don't I don't have a word for that. That's one of those things where you know it's it's like in an abstract sense I understand the whole idea of like you're at the bargaining table everything has to be on the bargaining table and you have to maximize your leverage on every single issue. In an abstract sense I get that. But in a sitting down at the table across from another human being and then being like they they propose a non-discrimination clause and you're like well what are you going to give me if i agree to that like uh the satisfaction know, like, of agreeing to a good there? idea <laughs> yeah. yeah like how do you not sit there and be like am i the baddies like <laughs> yeah and i also like in negotiations sometimes the way it goes i can't guarantee that it's the way it go- when in this case is that you give them a proposal and then you go away and then there's another bargaining session and they come back with a counter proposal and you get all of the things that are crossed out mm-hmm. because they take your proposal and they cross things out and can you imagine being the person who is writing up that document is like uh, yeah, we're supposed to cross out this non-discrimination clause. <laughs> yeah, like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Sandy Peoples, that bargaining committee member, said that negotiations have stalled on three core issues. Fair compensation, including wages and benefits, union shop, which requires union members for all graduate students, and fair termination policies. In a written statement, the university spokesperson this is not I didn't write this part farting loudly out of his ass said John Hopkins <laughs> leadership is quote working amicably and constructively end quote with union members to negotiate <laughs> yeah I mean John I just, did you write that one you will after reading that negotiation <laughs> stalled on fair compensation which is like obviously what negotiations are fucking about union shop which I guess I can kind of understand negotiations faltering on that that's something a lot of places feel entitled to not have but then to have the third one be fair termination policies to have them hold out and say we're working amicably and constructively with you while adamantly maintaining that they want to be able to fire you for any fucking reason and never explain it is the most dishonest thing i've ever heard like in a long time like really yeah well let's continue with their dishonesty because there's a quote here that says 
quote, the union and the university have reached an, reached agreement on a number of important contract terms, and we are hopeful that we will reach an agreement that both sides can support soon. Uh, they're not hopeful, uh, as far as I can tell. It's just so fucking dumb. Like It's like they're not even fucking trying with this stuff, well, honestly. Well, no, that's why I like it, because I just love the, the we're hopeful. We're not trying to make it happen, <laughs> but we hope. <laughs> we're actively preventing it from happening, but we're hopeful. <laughs> yeah. And Awadala said that it's shameful that grad- that graduate student workers at Hopkins don't make a livable wage. Having proper wages and benefits being a major equity issue, they added, uh, quote, Our original proposal was the amount to not be rent burdened in a one-bedroom apartment in Baltimore, and they immediately shut that down. We want an amount of money and benefits such that we're not just subsisting in this university, we are thriving at this university, and we're able to do our jobs better as researchers and teachers. I come from underrepresented backgrounds in academia. I grew up not very economically privileged, and I'm a child of immigrants. Johns Hopkins should understand that making a living wage and being able to provide for not just yourself, but any obligations you have would allow people that aren't traditionally represented in academia to get PhDs, end quote, which I mean, so often these unions are just trying to make it so it's like you don't have to come from some rich family Mm -hmm. to go to college. Well, it's, it's, it's just so great to hear them not just saying, you know, hey, we're trying to improve the situation for everybody here. We're trying to band together. We're trying to have solidarity. But also to say, like, look, the ultimate goal of this is to remove the structural impediment to people having access, whatever their background, whatever their economic situation, to being able to do this kind of research, to go into these kinds of fields. I think that's just such a really rich statement to to unpack Mm -hmm. because, like, you know, as much as I love a lot of union organizers, that kind of element of like really seeing it all the way through to its conclusion is not always present. And I think it's super, super valuable. Yeah. Well, and I mean, also just like this just makes me think because I've been looking at the idea of like proto union or guilds in like Europe and such and how universities are kind of the most like contemporary version of the way that guilds are set up and we also mentioned labor aristocracy and the exclusivity well guilds were basically a real embodiment of that you know exclusivity and you know pulling the ladder up behind you and just to say just to see that like universities are still basically that same guild structure and that these unions are the only thing that are actually really fighting back against that sort of you know exclusivity uh really means that we should be getting behind these workers and their unions uh with all of our support well (laughs) yeah if folks would like Another union they can get behind with all their support. Uh, there's a really big new one mm-hmm. that was just formed uh, at the end of last week. So in our final story, our, our very uh, happy story uh, for this week, uh, we're going to be talking about Cal State, which we actually just recently talked about because their faculty went on strike. Um, because, you know, we've talked a lot on the show about organizing waves of Obviously, graduate student workers, that's one of the biggest ones, but also adjunct faculty, things like that. But there have also been a a surge in union organizing among undergraduate workers. And this Friday, student assistants, undergraduate student assistants at the largest public university system in the country, California State, voted to unionize with the SEIU. 
Uh, and following a month-long electronic election with over 97% of votes in favor, the school's 20,000 student assistants will join the California State University Employees Union, SEIU Local 2579. That's a big number. Yeah, and this actually will more than double the size of SEIU Local 2579, which currently represents 16,000 other workers at the university. Uh, so this is now a 36,000-person local. Uh, wow, that which fucking is rocks. Pretty cool. Damn. Uh, That's enormous. And, right? Uh, and so this new bargaining unit, which covers 23 campuses, is now the largest undergraduate union in the country. Um, and I did just want to also mention uh, one little bit of news because we did talk about that recent strike by the California Faculty Association. Uh, and I just did want to mention, since we're talking about Cal State, that uh, the workers involved in that strike did just recently, last week, uh, approve their tentative agreement as their Hell new yeah. contract uh, by 76%. Um, so okay, pretty good. Just wanted to note that. So there, well, we know there was some opposition. There were some questions about if it you know, had gotten all that it could. But I guess it seems like you know you got a solid supermajority of folks in favor of it. So congratulations again to the California faculty, or sorry, the Cal State faculty. Uh, and so yeah, so these undergraduate students, uh, one of them, Emilio Carrasco, a, a junior at uh, Fresno State, told CBS, "quote The CSU says their goal is to help the student body to make sure they're set up for success, but it's kind of hypocritical in a way." Because they're not paying many of the student assistants enough to even support themselves, to pay their rent, pay for food, pay for bills, end quote. And the vote comes nearly a year after student workers filed with the state for an election, because obviously this being a state institution, and these are public workers, their uh, labor law is governed by the state. So, the, And you know, we have seen so many of these states that, uh, you know, tout themselves as being very progressive that then tend to be uh, extremely regressive uh, when it comes to labor. So, yeah, it took almost a year uh, to get their election. And that's a big deal when you're talking about student workers, an inherently somewhat transient workforce. So, but the vote with its 97% in favor really reflects the poor conditions that these workers face. Because as reported by CBS News San Francisco, the students make the minimum wage of $16.25 and have no paid sick leave at all. So if they are sick, they're compelled to work through, you know, wanting to make sure that they can still make rent, assuming, you know, they're trying to make rent or, I don't know, buy food or any of the other necessities. Mm -hmm. uh, this is also assuming that they don't have families. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, with undergrad workers, it less common, but still, I mean, very, very, very much an important consideration. But the other thing, though, uh, that they pointed out, and one of the things that they plan to fight in there for their first contract is that there is a hard cap of hours that these workers can do, which is only 20. And now, mm -hmm. obviously, you know, uh, you'd prefer that folks work 20 hours and that's enough. But in reality, especially when you're making the fucking minimum wage, if you need to pay your rent, you need to pay your food, you need to pay your bills, as as Emilio Crosco said, you probably are going to need, even with a good raise with your first junior contract, you're probably going to need more than 20 hours. And so that's one of the things that they want to fight for is to get rid of that cap and allow for the student workers who need more hours to be able to pay their bills to be able to actually get it. 
But I do want to point out one of the things here, because, you know, I think uh, obviously folks recognize the cost of living crisis that we're in right now, that, you know, that's, that's obviously behind a lot of organizing drives because of the fact that wages have kept nowhere near up with inflation on the, the raises we're, that we're getting. But this has been a problem at Cal State for a while now because a 2016 study found that nearly a quarter of the system's 460,000 students were food insecure and an estimated 10% of them were homeless. Wow. Like, that—that that is an indictment of the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's—and uh, so obviously not all of those students are, are, are like— student employees there's only only 20,000 of them are but that gives you but like those student assistants are going to be at least somewhat representative of the the broader population of students in the system and when you have that many that are food insecure that that 46,000 homeless estimated and you're like we shall pay them $16 an hour and give them no more than 20 hours a week that'll be fine (laughs) like yeah that's that's not working no, that's $16,000 a year. Like you can't live anywhere on that, much less fucking California. Right? <laughs> even if you're getting some sort of a student discount, even if you have like six roommates, like it's yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And so with with the current I I I think, you know, that's and that's important to point out. That was that was in 2016, 8 years ago. When the economy was significantly better for workers than it is, it's still bad, but significantly better than it is right now. Yeah, before COVID, before the the rise in the the current cost of living crisis, I mean... Yeah, so those figures can only have gotten worse. And so now, though, with a union uh, united with tens of thousands of other Cal State workers, these undergrads now have the tools and the leverage to at least change the conditions of their employment. Yeah, yeah, all power to them. Hell yeah. Mm-hmm. 20,000 workers in a new union. You don't, that's a big chunk. You don't, we don't get a lot of those. So, like, that was very exciting to see. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, if we could uh, get one of those every fucking month or two, we would have this country's union density problem solved a lot quicker than we're mm-hmm. solving it now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And speaking of solving problems, something that we like to do at the end of every episode, we like to solve your bo- your sadness, your your your, <laughs> co- your lack of comedy, your your ennui, your malaise, your, yeah, uh, yeah, your yeah. strong desire for image descriptions, your desperate need to open the fridge and eat cheese and olives directly out of it. Is that just me? Am I That's only right. One? This is <laughs> the <laughs> meme review. <laughs> And surprisingly, one of them is not the going back at 3 a.m. for more olive meme, despite John, <laughs> John's comments. I need to print that out and put it on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so our first one this week is a history meme. <laughs> because, you know, we were talking earlier about OSHA. We do so love to talk about the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and their uh, ineffective in their nominal role, but very effective in their co-optational role uh, on this show. But what if OSHA had existed forever Mm. and so much forever that it existed back in ancient Greece? So this first one is uh, the, is basically just a, a, it's like one of those drawings you would see on like uh, pottery from like the, the ancient Greek era. And you've just got, Basically, Achilles here, uh, in with a, carrying a sword and looking back at having been shot in the heel, uh, as one, as he was in the in the 
the legend there. Uh, and so, but this one has now been transformed into an ancient Greek pottery uh, workplace safety advisory from OSHA. <laughs> and he's now looking back and it's labeled, this fate could have been avoided if Achilles was wearing OSHA-approved work boots. Oh. And then labeled at the bottom, don't let workplace safety be your Achilles heel. <laughs> it's very clever. Also, why was his ass fighting barefoot in the first place? I mean, really. <laughs> if you got one weakness, just put something over it. OSHA approved, man. I don't even care. Put a little bit of leather strap over your heel. Come on. Who's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. better well, judgment? You mentioned then it wouldn't be a parable. Yeah. I think judgment was really his Achilles heel. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Well, and you mentioned he had a sword. We actually have another meme with a sword where uh, this is a... <laughs> yeah, I don't know my, that that's we my have trans- to come up with segues That's for my transition, memes. yeah. <laughs> Uh, we have a four-panel comic here where uh, it's, I guess, an office setting, but it's also like a combination, like RP, like party-based RPG comic. So in the first panel, it says, or it has this guy in like a, a you know, I it's guess, like if you work at it, this is like, this is basically just looks like it's documenting the union struggle at medieval times. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> I was gonna definitely. say, oof, another day at the Dungeons and Dragons factory. <laughs> Which, yeah. I mean, if this Wizards of the Coast had a union drive, didn't they? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so this person who is, I guess, the uh, the leader of the party said, I came to talk to the boss. And then the secretary at the desk says, does your party consist of at least one tank, one healer and two DPS? And then it uh, pans out and shows the rest of the party. And the leader says, yes. And then the the secretary says, uh, have you already defeated the mini bosses of accounting, legal, and HR? And then kind of with a little bit of dread, the person says, yes. And then she finally says, you can pass. And then the, the last panel is the boss, I guess, where it's just this, like, I don't know, angel of sorts, but it's like... Uh, it, it, the boss has been sephiroth <laughs> Yeah. And then it, they're, they're getting ready to battle, and he's just shouting, living wage in this economy? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, uh, I feel like the there's so much description that went into this one, I lost a little bit of steam, but it, it I did really enjoy this particular comic. It is a great comic. That's the danger of a, a, a highly detailed comic, though, in the meme review uh our next one has a lot of words as well but they're actually all written on the page so this just has um a large man handing uh uh you know the large man obviously being a capitalist he's well dressed and then handing a homeless you can tell because of his bowler hat the bowler hat means he's classy (laughs) in the in the old sense of the term which means upper class um and he's handing this man a cup of coffee and it says the unemployed above the other man and under it it says capitalist handing the unemployed a cup of coffee and a sandwich. Quote, Why, man? I don't want to see you starve. I need you to keep my employees from asking higher wages. End quote. Cartoon by Art Young. And I gotta say, uh, this is pretty damning because this is one of the most incredible things that people talk about. You'll even hear liberal economists say it's actually bad if unemployment gets too low. And that's wrong because it's bad for a very specific group of people if unemployment gets too low. I, another yeah. thing I like about this one is that they've written, they actually technically have written a image description in for us. <laughs> yeah. I didn't really have to describe anything. I just had to comment on it. Nailing so, this art young. 
And so our next one, this is very simple. This is your uh, don't do that, do this uh, format here. But it, instead of the classic Drake version, we've got a Jordy LaForge version here from Star the King Trek. LeVar Burton from Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, with the first one of don't do this, we all quit. And you've got Jordy like, wait, hold up. And then pointing, now here's a ticket. We all got a union now. Here's what's got to change. That's right. I I do think that it does. We do need to remind people that uh, instead of everybody quitting, there's a, a lot more power in organizing, and you can mm-hmm. uh, change things for the better. And honestly, when you're when you end up quitting like that, sometimes you end up making lateral moves, and you just move into like another shitty job. And jumping from shitty job to shitty job is just not. It's not actually a good way of uh, improving your conditions, but what is a good way is uh, this last meme, which is a nice, cute meme with three cats sitting on some like metal railing. There's an orange cat, a black cat, and then a, uh, a white and gray cat, and they're labeled Agitate, Educate, Organize. And uh, yeah, cats. I like this because I have three cats. That one's Cleo. <laughs> That one's Tilly, and that one's Marvin on the right side. <laughs> <laughs> we all love. Well, I mean, yeah, Tilly and Cleo are great, but we really love Marvin. He's the boy. Don't give him we, too much love. It's just because he's <laughs> fucking an asshole, and it's cute when you're a cat. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess with that, we're going to wrap for this episode. We want to thank everybody for listening. If you'd like to support us, you can share the show with your friends, or you can support us on Patreon, Mm -hmm. where you get access to all of our bonus overtime content. We just did an interview with an IWW member explaining the contemporary IWW, and uh, that was really interesting. And then we're going to be picking back up with our History of Women's Labor Struggles in the United States series this week uh, with our part five in that. And there's so there's a a lot there become a patron at patreon.com slash work stoppage jump in the discord and come hang out with us write us a review somewhere all of the links are at workstoppagepod.com listen to beep beep lettuce listen to red game table and as always labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever solidarity solidarity everybody one two three Look, I mean, I don't, I don't care. But I'm pretty sure it's supposed to look like that, right? Nope. We 
man like them We in the weird shit Me and my peers disappear when the lights hit Roach wag, same kind of path Stash no crap, trying to gag in your coach bag Something about your money, trust no rich folks Empty out the tummy on your mat That's how I feel about that Back to that good old-fashioned class warfare Ain't enough in the cast Got the young punk stab any rapper And laugh when he piss blood So human, all flawed Found my world trying to test those odds Best flow shows for the wreck Not the rep when the set's done No one's up next And no one's upset And no one holds breath anymore, right? Explore This world's got a whole lot of locked doors We decided not to live here anymore Found a way to trade tragic for savage We insist on a life that's average This world's got a whole lot of locked doors We decided not to live here anymore Picked through the norm, didn't fit Didn't stick to the script, didn't care We don't even live here No, 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 no,